available in more homes than the Pac-12 Network. We are the Podcast of Champions. I'm David Woods from Bruin Report Online. And here he goes, Miles Jack! And I'm Ryan Abraham from uscfootball.com. Liner, going to try to sneak it ahead. Touchdown, SC! We are the Podcast of Champions. Welcome, everyone, back to the Podcast of Champions. I'm David Woods from Bruin Report Online, the UCLA site on the 24-7 Sports Network. And I'm Ryan Abraham from uscfootball.com, the USC site on the 24-7 Sports Network. And together, we make the Podcast of Champions, talking all things Pac-12 football. Happy New Year to one and all. Hopefully, Sound a little better than the last episode when I was in my parents' living room and you can hear my mom in the background and I'm back with David Woods, back for 2021. It's going to be a better 2021 for the Pac-12 than 2020, David. Are you with me? What a low bar to clear. That's great. I like that. The uh, <laughs> that's, that's low expectations. We love them here on the Podcast of Champions. We abide by that. I, I assume all of you are listening because you too have low expectations. So... I think combined, um, we are all approaching this with the right attitude, and thus, 2021 is a full year for everyone. Will be better than 2020, which really, how can it not be? Yeah, um, <laughs> the low bar. I love the low bar. Um, we do. We don't have a low bar when it comes to listeners. We have great listeners. We appreciate what you guys do. If you want to send us any of your questions, we're going to start off-season mode. We'll do a recap show today for the bowl games and answer some questions and we'll get into some of the recruiting stuff uh, in the coming weeks, but it's going to be a, you know, fairly long off season. Again, we'll see if there's going to be some spring football out here on the West coast. That'll be something to watch. But in the meantime, send us your questions for any kind of topics you want us to discuss pack podcast at gmail.com or call or text us at four, two, four, five, three, two, zero, six, seven, eight. You can also tweet us at pack 12 podcast. The website is pack 12 podcast.com on Reddit podcast of champions there's been some discussion there and also on apple Podcasts, you can please subscribe to the podcast of champions and give us a rating we love the five stars that's our that's our thing that's our ask we're asking you to put five stars down there and then insult us all you want when you leave us the review but try to put the five stars there that does really help grow the show and i got some uh hold on david i got some breaking news uh i'm an iphone guy now I know. I noticed because um, in the text message you sent to me that I didn't respond to, um, it came via iMessage instead yes. of your usual like green, you know, bullshit where <laughs> I have to have a good cell phone connection to actually send it instead of just being on Wi-Fi. Now I can actually respond to you via uh, the Wi-Fi, which I, I won't say it'll increase my rate of response, um, but there's a chance, right? Yeah. But um, I'm proud of you. I'm proud of you for finally getting off that Google dime or whatever and uh, moving on to uh, the iPhone. It's great. Merry Christmas to me. Uh, yeah. So everyone, you know, now we both have an iPhone. You would think there'd be less of an excuse for him to not respond to, you know, not a complex text like show tomorrow, like things like that. No, no response. Whatsoever. You actually had to. You actually had to contact me via a different medium. 
to make yes. sure that we could record this today. A medium I saw he was active on, so then I sent him a message there. <laughs> and it still took me like an hour to respond to it. <laughs> so good. But, but here we are. It's a Monday. We're recording the show. We do, like I said, we're going to recap. We do have both. a review. Hey, hey, you're you're scooting right past the review we got. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, let's. You yeah, missed let's... it because sometimes Apple. So, as much as I, I wanted Ryan to get an iPhone to make iMessaging easier, uh, Apple's shitty. Like everything about <laughs> it is kind of shitty. Uh, but one thing also is the listings of their reviews. Oftentimes, the most recent ones do not show up at the top, for whatever reason. But we got one showed up at the bottom because why not? From WD Bell Law, this is from two days after Christmas, five stars, totally adequate. If you took Elizabeth Warren's angry nephew and paired him with a croquet mallet that came to life and asked them to do a weekly podcast discussing the sixth best college football conference, you would have the POC. You won't necessarily be informed or entertained by each episode, but you won't hate yourself for listening. Five stars. Beautiful review. Love it. Nice. I love it. Um, as we're, are you, as, so I, I would guess that I am the angry nephew and you are the croquet mallet that came to life. <laughs> Probably. Yes. <laughs> love it. As you were reading that, I was trying to bring up uh, the reviews on there and then like the latest episode started to play. So uh, I'm still figuring out some of the iPhone intricacies, I guess you could say. Well, it's, I mean, it's very bad and none of it's good, um, but at least you get to use iMessage now. Yeah. I'll do that, and then you can. I can see that you haven't responded to my message even yeah. clearer. Yeah, it yeah. says delivered, and uh, David, you know, whatever. At least I didn't do you the disservice of leaving my read receipts on. Um, you know, where you let somebody know that you've read your text, but you then still don't respond to it. So some people do that, like you. Yeah, can, yeah. Because uh, I mean, like, we uh, with without the read receipts, we're left with plausible deniability, right? If you don't have the read receipt, you can say, oh, I didn't have my phone, which is, I mean, complete bullshit for everyone nowadays. <laughs> everyone has their phone and is staring at it like 18 hours a day. Um, but at least you can pretend, right? And everyone can abide by that pretense. Like I can, when I text somebody and they don't respond, I can think, okay, I can think good things about that person because maybe they didn't have their phone. With the read receipts, you're left with none of that. There's yeah. pressure on you to respond, but there's also like real potential for, um, a real breach of protocol, real, real, real breach of uh, polite society. If you do not then respond, and if that person judges you for it, uh, fair. I'm, I'm still figuring this stuff out, but I did. I do like that it says it's delivered, and but yeah, obviously. Oh, but you, don't you know can turn on something extra, which actually says red. Yeah. Yeah, you don't want that. Don't no. do that. All right. So let me know when you if you ever text me on this again, like, let me know if mine says red or not. So the odds of me responding to you again, pretty slim. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. Well, we do have some other kind of newsy stuff. Um, just, you know, really the one coaching change uh, with uh, Jed Fish at Arizona. He did um, hire um, his offensive staff as of now. So. Brennan Carroll, if you remember that name, uh, he comes over as the offensive coordinator and offensive line coach. Um, Jimmy Doherty, who um, was coaching wide receivers, I believe, for UCLA, he's going to coach the quarterbacks. Uh, also brings in uh, Scotty Graham for running backs, Kevin Cummings for wide receivers, and Jordan Powpow for uh, the tight ends. I don't know if you're familiar with any of these guys, coach, but I mean, uh, coach, oh my God. Hitler once once emailed us about Jordan Powpow. That is my full and complete information about Jordan Powpow. Well, who emailed you? Hitler He emailed us like not even four months ago about Jordan oh. Powpow. 
Nice. Okay. He does like the tight end coach talk. Yeah. Oh, yeah, he does. Um, yeah. Uh, Jimmy Doherty, uh, that's, uh, you know, Jed Fish worked with him at UCLA in 2017. He was one of the coaches retained uh, from that final Jim Morris staff by Chip Kelly. Um, so, and I, you know, he was a solid recruiter. He was coaching a position that he didn't play. Um, so I think it's an opportunity to get back to uh, maybe coaching something that's a more natural fit for him. He's going to be the QB coach. Um, but I think that's a good hire. I think it's, I mean, uh, for, you know, I, I know Arizona has some budget constraints. I think it's a pretty good staff for the money. Um, so we'll see how it all, you know, wh- what do you know about Brennan Carroll? Um, because I'm, I'm pretty anti-nepotism generally, and I know he got his start for literally the first seven years of his coaching career by being Pete Carroll's son, son. Yes. Yeah. Um, but did he turn out to be good or is this just more, I mean, and his last job was basically being Pete Carroll's son again at the Seahawks. Yeah. So is he better than Pete Carroll's son or is he just Pete Carroll's son? I mean, I think it's an excellent, uh, question. So he started in 2002, I believe it was, he was a GA. Um, and then he's worked for uh, just, I want to give everyone real clarity here. He's worked for four years as anything, as something other than Pete Carroll's son. Yeah. (laughs) With the Miami hurricanes from 2011 to 2014. Yes. And then the Seahawks and now, uh, the Wildcats. Um, he was a tight end kind of guy back then. There was a lot of energy. I thought recruiting wise, he was definitely uh, involved a, a lot. So I think he was like legit. Um, you know, he was the recruiting coordinator for a while for like the last three years of Pete Carroll's tenure. And, you know, a lot of times that's just an organizational thing, but he was involved in, in recruiting. He was definitely a big part of it, but I just remember him as being a a tight ends guy. And in Miami, I believe he kept doing that. Um, he was a recruiting coordinator, but also wide receivers and, and tight ends. And then he made the jump to offensive line coach with the Seahawks. And I think he was working with Pat rule, who was also like USC's offensive line coach for a while. And Pat rule retired recently. Um, so that seemed to be the jump is to go from the offensive, you know, from, basically recruiting guys that catch the football to the guys that block. That was a Pete Carroll's son sort of thing. So I, I haven't, to be honest, I haven't followed that since, you know, he'd moved up there to Seattle, but he's been there, you know, the last five years or so. Um, you know, thought it was interesting. It's a name I knew. Um, but you know, maybe it's sort of like a budgetary constraint thing. Like you mentioned it is part of this. Uh, but he's got, you know, he's the offensive coordinator. He's going to be calling plays and, uh, you know, coaching the offensive line. So it's a it's a good jump uh, for, for Brennan Carroll. And so Jed Fisher, I think, is a sharp guy. Obviously saw something there. So uh, we'll we'll see how that one works out. But, yeah, I it, it's most of his career has been um, Pete Carroll's son, right? So that's uh, it's a little different. Yeah, I mean, uh, really, I mean, I'm, I'm being a little snarky. Jed Fish is more than likely going to be handling the offense for the most part. Um, I would imagine Carroll, it's a good opportunity for him to get that full title that he hasn't had before. And I'm sure he's going to be relied, relied upon for a ton of recruiting. Um, you know, he was a recruiting coordinator for USC, but then also Miami when, I mean, I think they had pretty good classes under Al Golden those years. So um, I'm sure it's a good ad from that perspective. Um, yeah. Familiarity well, with the if, if Fish is calling the plays. Yeah. Then yeah, I, I'm but, sure he will be. I mean, I, he's, that's his 
bread and butter, so I don't think he would just completely move off of that at this point. Yeah, I haven't read that, but that would make sense. If he's offensive coordinator, sort of like in name, right? Um, so, huh. Yeah. All right. Well, cool. Yeah. Well, we'll uh, kind of keep up to date on what's going on here. Were there any? Have you heard of any big – USC fired a couple coaches, but nothing. Uh, like they fired their offensive line coach. and. Uh, Are they going to hire won't... Bob Connolly again? They could get Bob Connolly back. I think he was the last I saw him. He was on the uh, the the opening circuit, you know, doing those Nike camps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and they about, did not retain about, Aaron Osmus. That, that's about his level. Yeah, his strength coach Aaron Osmus that was not retained. If you remember when USC hired him a couple of years ago, he hadn't worked in college in about five years. He was working in the private yeah. world. Um, I I don't remember seeing. You know, I, I'm going to blame John Wilner. I don't think I've got a. Uh, newsletter from him for for a while so it's hard to get pac-12 news without his stuff yeah it's kind of crap um <laughs> ucla uh yeah they've got to replace doherty um but i don't think there are any other changes nothing i can think of um aside from the preseason change where they changed defensive coordinators but didn't tell anybody um but yeah i, I don't think there's a whole lot else going on the other thing with arizona is that they are still, I think, in the courting process, but haven't yet signed Don Brown as their defensive coordinator. If they actually end up doing that, uh, that'll be a dynamite hire. Um, he was, he churned out elite defenses at Michigan every single year besides this one. Um, mm. And it's, I think, ri- probably ridiculous that Michigan fired him. Um, probably just the thing where Jim Harbaugh had to make a head roll. Um, but I think he would be a really, really, really big upgrade uh, for Arizona. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll kind of keep you up to date on what's going on um, there. Uh, we'll get, like we said before, we'll get into some recruiting stuff with. We'll probably should we get Huffman on? I think Huffman really wanted to be on, right? Yeah, we got to get Huffman on. We got to get Huffman on, but we got some. We got great people to choose from um, with Huffman and uh, Blair Angulo or Greg Biggins. So we got some good West Coast folks. Hey, real quick before we get into that. Uh, so if, I don't know if you've worked with Barton Simmons before, but it's been doing this recruiting thing for quite a while. We've seen this happen in basketball. Apparently it's happening in football. Now he got hired by Vanderbilt, like a school actually hired him to do kind of like all that scouting stuff. Um, do you, uh, what did you think of that? Do you think that's like a trend going forward? Um, yeah, I mean, he's being hired from what I understand in that director of football ops role, right? I believe so. Yeah. It's, it's, it's yeah, I believe I mean, that's the role. I, I think it's it makes a ton of sense because, I mean, guys like Simmons, but guys also like Huffman, Biggins, they have a ton of connections in the recruiting world. Like, they know all these guys, and if they're good at their jobs, which they are, uh, they know all these guys and have real relationships with them, and it's it's silly to not take advantage of that. Um, so I think with, I think it was Clark Lee at Vanderbilt who hired um Simmons, Clark Lee's a really sharp dude. He coached at UCLA at one time, so I, you know, knew him a little bit. Um, he was the linebackers coach, and then he moved on to Notre Dame. Um, he's really sharp, really impressed me. Um, so I think he's probably looking for an advantage there, um, and I think that's a good way to get it. And that's not an on-field coaching role; that's a, a administrative role, but it's huge. Um, it can be. You know, at UCLA right now, uh, they've got a really sharp guy in that role, Ethan Young, who's, you know, kind of a young kid who was basically just like a Twitter NFL draft scout before he jumped into this. But Chip Kelly spotted him and decided he was going to be his football ops guy. And um, 
he uh, he's been a big part of UCLA's recruiting. Um, like oftentimes, the best guys that UCLA's recruiting, they're mentioning Ethan Young as the first guy on their list. Um, so I think it's a it's you know if you're if you're trying to be you know to outdo some you know better recruiting staffs or, or maybe some more high profile programs. You've got to look for these kinds of angles and advantages. So I really like it as a move, and I really like it as a move for Vanderbilt um, because maybe they can pull a couple of guys because of relationships that Simmons has with various, you know, seven-on-seven programs with various high schools, all that kind of stuff. And that's not illicit. That's just the name of the game. Um, So much of this is, all right, who do you know and what are your connections? And it's silly to just – Oh, I'm going to go hire Joe Schmo because he played football at some time and is now, you know, he's done his bit at these other programs. No, just jump the line and go hire Barton Simmons or, you know, go go kick the tires on a Brandon Huffman or Greg Biggins because those guys do have those relationships and they, you know, can probably benefit a lot of programs, especially those that are looking for an advantage over maybe more higher profile programs. It is funny the guys like I, I wasn't familiar with Ethan Young's work, but people that work sort of in that space and then they come to schools and they're not those coaches that are out there recruiting. But the, the recruits mentioned like, yeah, Coach Young. And you're like, well, he's yeah, not a coach, but OK. Uh, but yeah, it, it comes up a lot. Like those are guys that contact them all the time. Yeah. And especially like because, I mean, it's there's there's limits to what you can do in that sort of role versus others. But you can still do quite a bit. Um, especially when they're on campus, like giving them like tours and stuff like that can often be the football ops people. Um, so there's a lot of connection possibility just from that role. So, um, yeah, I'm really interested to see how that turns out. I know it's been kind of hit or miss on the basketball side. I know some of those, you know, some of these guys who've been hired over the last, I I mean, I think John Hollinger was hired and then didn't last very long and he was more of an analytics guy, but there have been kind of these moves from the journalistic side of, of covering this stuff to the actual team side in the past and basketball. And it's been hit or miss, but I'm interested to see how this one works out. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get to, uh, we're kind of avoiding the games if we could, but, uh, we have two bowl games. Uh, first one, we have the Alamo bowl and that was Colorado Buffalo. Taking on the Texas Longhorns. Uh, Moo? <laughs> sure. I don't know. Uh, 55 23, uh, Texas beat Colorado. Second year in a row, Texas just kind of bloodbathed a uh, Pac 12 team. Wasn't it last year when they did this to Utah? It was, yes. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, it's kind of a bummer. I mean, I think it was just kind of a, uh, it felt like a bowl game. Like it just felt like a bowl game, like a random mid level bowl game with both teams just kind of looking a little bit rough. Um, I thought both teams started their wrong quarterback. Uh, Sam Neuer didn't have it at all. Um, probably should have been pulled earlier. Um, and he was pulled and then came back in. He probably should have just not played at all in the second half. Uh, Brendan Lewis, who, you know, in the preseason, I remember reading some on the Colorado boards, but also just kind of, you know, eyeballing the depth chart. It felt like he probably should play this year. You know, he was a top dual threat prospect, um, you know, coaching for the future, all that sort of stuff. Um, and then he did come in and looked the part, um, you know, with six of 10 for 95 yards, but also ran. Um, he had a 44 yard. I think it was a 44 yard touchdown, um, but ran nine carries, 73 yards. 
Uh, he looked good. And then for Texas, what really actually killed Colorado is that Sam Ellinger went out. And then Casey Thompson came in and destroyed. Uh, he was 8 of 10 for 170 yards and four touchdowns. That guy looked friggin' elite. If uh, if Tom Herman had decided to play him a little bit earlier, maybe he'd still have a job. Yeah. Um, that was that was impressive. That was really eye opening. Um, Texas just had a like, not to be vulgar, but they just had a shit ton more talent. I mean, Bijan Robinson, if they just handed him the ball, I don't know, twenty five times instead of ten, this one would have been a disaster at halftime. Um, instead, it lasted until the end of the game, and I think that's a credit to you know Colorado's defense. I thought played a uh, they put a game effort together um, and it just kind of fell apart for them in the second half. But, um, you know, they got some stops at different points. It's just they, they couldn't sustain anything offensively. Jarek Broussard, uh, the offensive line, I think, for the first time kind of met its match, didn't really open a ton of lanes for him and he didn't do a lot with what was open. Um, so it was just, you know, I think it was not to put too fine a point on it. They were just out talented. I mean, fundamentally, almost completely. And, um, yeah, I don't I don't know if you can take a whole lot more away from it at this point. Yeah, and, you know, coming into this one, both sides were down players. I think that's been a common theme, right? They're like, oh, the best wide receivers for this team aren't around, or this team's missing a couple offensive linemen, or whatever. That was just kind of a common thing. And it, both ways. But in this case, Texas just had better players uh, than Colorado, even with both sides being down a bunch of guys. It to me, you're watching this game, and like you said, in the first half, it was closer than I thought it should have been. Um, it looked like they could just hand the ball off and beat Colorado because they would, you know, there would be this big gap, and like an unsuccessful run was like six yards. <laughs> you know, you're yeah. like oh, that didn't get blocked that well, but it still went for six yards, and you could just keep doing that over and over. Um, you know, when uh, you, you you see like. The starting quarterback, Sam Ellinger, I think he declared for the NFL draft, too. Um, he goes down, and Texas actually started stretching the lead. Like you said, he just went bonkers. And I liked what I saw from true freshman Brendan Lewis. Um, you know, I believe he was at the helm on all three of Colorado's touchdown drives. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, it, you know, especially in the second half, Colorado, I mean, just couldn't hang with Texas, there were some, you know, I, maybe some feisty play from Colorado early on that did keep it close, but at no point were you going like, you know, which way was the momentum? Like, even if like Colorado would get a stop or whatever, you just felt like, okay, well, you guys are both going to have to line up in the same spot again. And I like what that team, <laughs> that other team's going to do more than what Colorado is going to do. And they just stretched the lead in the second half. I believe it was a uh, a bowl game record for Texas as far as number of points scored. Um, you know, it wasn't the complete shutdown of Colorado's offense like we saw last year with Utah. But, you know, this was the backup quarterbacks scored a whole bunch of points. And, uh, you know, Texas was just a lot better. And this was a Texas was favored by uh, nine and a half, and I took the Longhorns, and you took uh, Colorado. I think you wanted to take the Longhorns, but you had to go opposite me. Um, yeah. So this was a, uh, yeah, this this was just a beat down, and it's a it's a tough way for Colorado to end the season because we wanted to see them have the opportunity to play for the Pac-12 championship. We wanted to see them have a chance to play USC. That all didn't happen, and then. 
you sort of ended on this sour note. And uh, but overall, I think you're reading some of the Colorado boards. There's some positivity there uh, of what what's happened and you know building this program in the first year. So I, I think you got to give Carl Durrell some credit. You'd, you'd like to end a little bit better than it did, but it was pretty much a uh, pretty much a blow up. Yeah, the one one coaching note I would just throw out there is that at the time, so 24-10 uh, Texas over Colorado um, in the third quarter, uh, Texas had just driven down like two plays, 79 yards, boom, boom. Um, and it was 24-10, and Colorado really, really needed to answer. And then on the next drive, Durrell smartly went for it on fourth and one at the Texas 28, and they got it. And then it was fourth and two at the Texas 19 and they kicked the field goal. Um, and I, I it was uh, it's not egregious. Like it's not it's not like punting on like the 40, but it's still one of those things where you really need to go for that. Like you really need to know what kind of game you're about to get into um, because Texas has a lot more talent than you and they've just been kind of shooting themselves in the foot. But this the floodgates are going to start to open here pretty soon. Um and I think that was maybe a missed opportunity to because if I don't know if that changes the overall complexion of the second half, it probably doesn't. Texas probably scores a lot more efficiently than Colorado does. But if it's 24-17 at that point instead of 24-10 in Texas ball, um, you know, maybe things change a little bit. I agree with you 100 percent because you can't look at the first half and say, oh, we're hanging with these guys like you were lucky to be as close as it was. And but if you're you know, you're the team that's winning, you're Texas. And you're in this sort of dogfight that you don't feel you should be. I think you're looking to space, you know, to get to build a little space between the two programs. And if you're Colorado and you cut it again to one score, I think you could keep Texas in that mindset. But I think kicking the field goal sort of put Texas in a different mindset. And it was just like, yeah, we're going to score a whole bunch of points. Um, I think you needed to to push the the you know you going for it and not picking it up. Is and not they missed. Be, I mean, the yeah. fundamental thing is they also missed, but right. um, but even not being results oriented, just simply kicking the field goal there is a mistake. Yes, uh, I I just feel like missing the field goal or or I mean making the field goal versus going for it and not getting it, you're going to be in about the same yeah, spot. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Being down eleven in this sort of game is not going to help you that much. No, you know this team was going to kind of explode, and if if it was a thing where the the starting quarterback was out and you're like. They can't move the ball anymore, so we, you know, we're, we're going to chip away at this. Like that wasn't the case at all. You're like, yeah, they're they're moving the ball at will, so you got to score the touchdown. It's fourth and two. It was, I mean, you could make an argument for fourth and eleven or something. Okay, kick the field goal, but fourth and two. That's you just did fourth and one. Go for it and and pick it up. Yep. Okay, so uh, well, okay, so the Alamo Bowl. You know, you could argue, you know, Colorado should have been in that one or whatever. It's just, yeah, it's overlook it. But there's a New Year's Six Bowl to look forward to, David. So, I mean, I figure the, the Pac-12 doesn't do good in that one. They'll do good in this next one. So we had the Oregon Ducks. And they took on the Iowa State Cyclones in the Fiesta Bowl. Pretty good. You like that? I, I, I thought that was great. I'm, I'm not bad. I'm not bad. Uh, yeah, the Cyclones did what you would think a Cyclone would do to a duck. Uh, they beat them. <laughs> 34-17. Uh, they were the number 10 team in the country. Oregon was the number 25 team. And that's about how it looked. Um, 
Yeah. I mean, Iowa State looked a lot better, um, and they kept taking advantage of just horrific Oregon mistakes. Um, Tyler Shuck threw a pick. There were three fumbles in this game, all by Oregon, all recovered by Iowa State. Um, Some of that's luck. You know, a fumble bounces a certain way, and you lose it. Losing all three of the fumbles in the game, that's um, a little unlucky for Oregon. Um, So I will say that. Um, But... Even still, um, I thought, you know, once again, I think Tyler Shuck, after I would say in the early season, looked really good. Um, back half of the year, been really rough um, or ruck, you might say. Um, you like that? <laughs> you like that? That's pretty. You're good. bringing it in 2021. Yeah. Um, Hit the yeah. rolling over. <laughs> uh, just a little bit. Um, it looks like I think the staff has lost confidence in him. Looks like he's lost quite a bit of confidence. So I think the offseason, um, he's going to need to rebuild that, uh, you know, kind of from the ground up because it's been a really tough, uh, tough couple of games. Um, Anthony Brown had to come in again. Um, he came in for a much more uh, extensive period in this one. Once again, scored a couple of touchdowns running the ball. Um, was okay throwing it. Um, you know, I didn't think he was perfect, and it seemed like he was kind of a, you know, um, Missing a couple of throws, but for the most part, he was fine. Um, so maybe they have something there. Um, but yeah, I mean, Iowa State looked good. Um, they've got these big, huge, tight endy type looking dudes um, that Oregon had a really tough time covering. And uh, they made some really tough catches. Uh, but for the most part, this is the story of Iowa State taking advantage of Oregon turnovers. Um, and that's really the story. Oregon wasn't able to score in the second half. Um, but Iowa State wasn't really either. This was mostly a first-half game. Um, so, yeah, disappointing finish for Oregon. Um, they did not – I was expecting a lot more of their talent to come into play, but in this one, I mean, Kayvon Thibodeau was kept mostly under wraps, no sacks. Um, Oregon total, only one sack in this game. Um, and in this – against a team like Iowa State, Oregon's, Oregon's got the talent now of a top-10 team they should be able to exert that a little bit against a team like Iowa State, which is, you know, corn-fed, you know, yada, yada, yada. But also, they, they're they a top 35 program, recruiting-wise. Um, the talent should show out a little bit more, and it, it just didn't. You know, Oregon wasn't, like, the much faster team. They weren't the much more athletic team. It's just, you know, it didn't really, it didn't really show up on the field, and that was uh, kind of shocking to me. It's a weird year. Um you're going to talk about the Pac-12 champion. I don't know if you can ever say this anytime, but the Pac-12 champion lost three of their last four games to Oregon State, Cal, and Iowa State. That's a weird thing. Um, it was weird that Iowa State took the opening kickoff and scored a touchdown with like just two minutes left before halftime. It just seems like they just ran. The, you know, they they had an 88 play drive they did that or whatever. Like three times where yeah. they just it was like, oh wow, they just took half a quarter to score. Yeah. Uh, milking the clock, scoring touchdowns, methodical drives. And you know if you're playing a team that's capable of doing that, where your defense can't get off the field, they're getting beat up, they're getting tired, you can't turn the ball over. And it's not so much the offense turning the ball over. The special teams play, David, was atrocious. It was – wait, hold on. They were herocious. The – okay. So – Iowa State scores, and which is like kind of demoralizing. Then they do that stupid little squib kick thing. Not stupid, because it worked very well. 
and you have an Oregon player like running over his shoulder trying to catch it. Nobody gets on the ball, and Iowa State just jumps on it like a complete disaster. Well, he successfully did it earlier in the game. He caught the over-the-shoulder squibby. Yeah. And so then he thought he could do it again. And and let me let me assure you, listener, he was not able to do it again. No. Uh, he was like three or four yards away from the ball. Nobody got it. They looked confused. Uh, there was, the, I believe, a muffed punt that led to another uh, Iowa State score uh, later in the game. Um, I don't know. It's just early on. So like Oregon was trying to match what Iowa state was doing, but then die fumbled in the second quarter. And, uh, so that was looked like it was going to be a killer, but the Oregon defense finally came up with a stop. It was like, Iowa state was like five for five or six for six on third downs. And then they were like, Oh, they missed one. Okay. They got, but it was like fourth and inches and they pick it up. So they picked up a couple fourth downs and all of the third downs, until they get to the goal line, and it was a huge stop by the Ducks. And you're like, okay, this could be something. And Anthony Brown led a 99-yard touchdown drive the other way. And you felt like, all right, this is Oregon sort of like they got back in the corner, they got beat down a little bit, and they punched their way out of it. But, you know, like I said, Iowa State scores, that squib kick thing happened. Um, they had a, The Ducks had a touchdown wiped out because of a holding call later in the game. Um they didn't have, if uh, correct me if I'm wrong, David, not a single third down conversion for the Ducks. That's going to be hard to win a game. Deep into that. the third, yeah, it, was, it ended up over six because I'm going to say deep into the fourth quarter, it was, it was. I remember that stat being cited on the telecast, but yeah, it ended up over six, over seven if you count fourth down as well. Yeah, um, you can't. You, and you can't Iowa State was eleven for nineteen. So <laughs> if you're wondering how they were able to have three drives of over seven and a half minutes, right there. Right there. They got themselves into a lot of third and fourth downs and then converted. They were 13 of 22 on third and fourth down. I don't know if there's a stat for this or whatever, but I, to me, Dave, when you're watching teams like that, it can be demoralizing when you're like, you're, you're getting to a lot of third down. So as a defense, you're doing all right on first and second down, you could argue, right? Um, even if it's third and short, you're like, okay, you're still forcing a, you know, a conversion to happen. But when you just keep giving up those conversions, it's like when all the chips are on the table, that's when you really need to come up with a stop. They just weren't able to. And, you know, Matt Campbell is a, a great coach. His name is going to come up all offseason in the NFL circles and college football circles. I mean, he's really good at what he does. I mean, they got Stanforded. They got they got 2009 Stanforded is what yeah. happened to Oregon. Um, like Iowa State, they weren't even like really running anything to go 15 yards. It was just a lot of. Five yards, four yeah. yards, five yards, six yards, three yards, two <laughs> yards, seven yards. Um, it's just a lot of that all the way down the field. Um, and, yeah, that's hugely demoralizing for Oregon, I'm sure. For me, it was great. You know, at the end of the first half, it was, I mean, the announcers called it out, and then they jinxed the whole thing because the last three minutes took, I think, several lifetimes. But I, I want to say, like, midway through the second quarter, it hadn't been an hour. Like yeah. it was, it was like, wow, this is, this is how football should be, just quick. It was moving right along, and uh, this was a four and a half point spread. Um, I ended up taking the Ducks on this one, thinking it would be a little closer than that. And I, I believe the same thing happened. You wanted to take Oregon too, but you took Iowa State to go against me, yeah. and that one ended up working out. Because yeah, uh, so it just goes to show you um, our picks are random chance. <laughs> well, the end of the day, it wasn't so random. At the end of the season. Um, we both, so we'll go one and one 
in our bowl picks. And uh, that puts me at 20, 13, and 1 for the year, which is respectable. And you were 18, 15, and 1, also respectable. So, we, you know, we did pretty good this year. We barely, Ryan a little bit more than barely, but I barely made you money this year if you were picking my picks. Yeah. Um, you know, it's all right. So we, we did okay for a pandemic year. I know a lot of people, especially early in the season, you know, the picks can get a little. For a pandemic year, come on. We've had years where we've had losing records. What? No. Uh, oh, yeah. You had a, I've had one and you've had one. Okay. Yeah. Come on. Yeah. For a pandemic year. You you try to gas us up way too much in these things. We we've done so this we're is clowns. One, two, this is a clown show. Don't yeah, whatever. All right. Well, we're for, like we've had four winning seasons each and one losing season each, so that's not too bad. That's all right. Uh, all right. Any other like Pac-12 stuff? Or you want to get to questions? I've got nothing else. Let's get to those questions. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll take a break. See moist questions. We'll take a break and come back with questions. <laughs> I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. How was the All break? Right. Yeah, it was a good break. Uh, good. We're back here on the podcast of champions for what Dave and I like to do. It's our favorite segment. Now for my favorite part of the show. What did I say? Talk to the audience. Oh, God, this is always death. Yeah, well, it's going to be a lot of that this offseason, David, I think. Oh, it's going to be so good. I can't wait. I can't wait until the offseason because we just we dealt with the longest one in history. And this one, I think, because we're going to start off with like just it being like, you know, the state of the world, whatever it is. It's going to be it's going to feel longer. I'm so excited. I think the thing will be looking at. um when if you we go back to last spring, right, where we were starting spring football, things were kind of getting going. You weren't sure what was going to happen. Things get shut down, and you were like, every month, you're like, oh, is it going to come back? Oh, it's going to come back. Things started open up in the summer. Like, oh, things are coming back. Oh, wait, it's getting worse. I feel like now you're sort of just like used to things being shut down. And if if we actually get the you know turn the faucet back on again, we'll be like, wow, this is great, you know. You're um, just gonna you're just holding out real hope that you get to watch a bunch of spring games again. I, I I need the spring games. I will I will go back on some platform and get the Pac-12 network again if we get some spring games going. I know. Um, you need your fix. Didn't didn't need it at all. I guess there was one there was one football game on the Pac-12 network. That was the Colorado San Diego State game. But 
I said on the show I didn't watch it because I did not. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see. Is it Perk Up first? Yeah, I think it's Perk Up first. Okay. Um, let's go. So we got a Perk question. Uh, which was the biggest surprise for you guys this season? Sam Neuer's strong season or Chase Garber's underwhelming year? Ooh, I got to go Neuer there. Uh, yeah, that was a pretty big surprise. Like, cause that was a reason why you're talking Cause he about, was, cause he was literally a safety last year. Yes. So, um, for Chase Garbers, I mean, I feel like we saw some good stuff from him. Um, but you know, that they had, they were pretty, they were slapped upside the head by pandemic stuff. So I, I mean, dude, a, a Cal offensive player looking like ass is not a big surprise. Yeah. <laughs> Even though he had the you know potential to be the league MVP. I mean, obviously, and he was last year, but yeah. this year, I mean, whatever. It's, it's Cal. Sometimes and then things Col- happen. I'm sorry, Colorado season or Cal season? Ooh. I had Colorado's for sure. I mean, I picked them to not win a game, so. I'd go Cal season. Really? I mean, them being horrible was a bit of a surprise for me. Didn't um, they beat Oregon? Didn't they beat the Pac-12 champion? That can't be horrible. Uh, yeah, but they were horrible, and that, I think, <laughs> speaks to Oregon not being very good. Um, which again we saw against Iowa State. Uh, Cal was what were they? Did they finish one and five? What did they do? One, like and one, three. And... one and three. They had four friggin' games canceled. Um, <laughs> but them being them being terrible was um, a little bit unexpected. And maybe I'm basing that entirely off of them getting blown out by UCLA, and I should um, reevaluate my priors. But I'm not interested in doing that. So I'll say Cal. I would say, yeah, no, for me, it's Colorado, just what they were able to do. Um, but for Cal, I mean, how you're, we, did you talk about, are you ever have a year where the Pac-12 champion finishes losing three of its last four and, you know, a Cal team that they only had one win, David, the only win was against the conference champion. Like, that's weird. Like, you're not going to see that happen very often. Oregon State, they had... Two wins. They beat Cal and and Oregon. Those are the only two wins. So I mean, that's just weird stuff. You don't normally see that in big time college football. And you know, make your jokes about Pac-12 not being big time college football. And you're probably right. Yeah. All right. Number two uh, in your guys' time covering UCLA and USC, what player slash recruit was the biggest letdown? Mm. Um, UCLA's got a couple. Um. I, the problem is I've got to decouple what I knew about the players going into it. Like, cause I was underwhelmed by a few of their five stars, like when they were recruited. So like, if you throw Soso Jamabo at me, I'll say, yeah, but that was something that we were all kind of talking about before he stepped foot onto campus, that he was a wide receiver and not really a running back. Um, I would say maybe Ellis McCarthy. Um, oh yeah. He came in, he was a big five star. He was the, Crown jewel of that first class for Jim Mora, defensive tackle, um, high expectations. And he came in just, uh, he was always big, but he came in probably 50 pounds over what he was playing at his senior year of high school and just never got it together. I uh, didn't really have much of a mean streak. Um, and just, it was just, you know, it, something just d- didn't go right for him in the, uh, in the time between senior year of high school and, uh, and freshman year at college. And then he just never quite panned out. So I'd say, you know, and I, I don't I, I don't love these kinds of questions because I don't love picking on guys who didn't like it's one thing to 
it's one thing to jokingly talk shit about somebody who's actually good. Like Jake Browning started four years at Washington, whatever. Like we can, we can joke about him. I don't want to pick on somebody who, you know, it turned out they weren't very good and they didn't play. Um, but yeah, Ellis McCarthy would probably be my pick. Did he transfer? What was his thing? No, he eventually played offensive guard. And then I think he just kind of moved on from football at some point. Okay. If I'm remembering correctly. Um, there's a bunch for USC. I mean, if you go back to 2003, I think it was Reggie Bush's uh, class. Like Whitney Lewis was like a five-star from St. Bonaventure. Um, he ended up transferring to Northern Iowa. Um, a lot of hype. But, the, you know, back then you had so many other guys that were awesome. Like if a five-star didn't pan out, it didn't it didn't shine as much as, you know, this would. Uh, Dylan Baxter was later on. He was 2010. And uh, there was a lot of problems with, you know, whatever with him. He had like a great spring game and that didn't um, work out. Kyle Prater was a, a five-star wide receiver in that same class that also, but, you know, you had Robert Woods and Marquise Lee, um, but, you know, he was from Illinois. He definitely didn't uh, work out all that, all that great. And, uh, you know, I, I might even throw like a George Farmer in there. He had an okay college career, but he was just like, he was supposed to be awesome from Sarah High School, and two guys from his, you know, two receivers from his same high school were end up being pros, you know, better than he was, which I never would have guessed uh, covering them in high school. Yeah, I don't know. Did you you covered those guys some, right? Or no? Was that? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And they said three, David. Uh, how should history view George H. W. Bush's presidency? Do you think W. ever runs if his dad wins re-election? Happy New Year, guys, from Perk. Um, God. Uh, H.W.'s presidency, um, as with most presidencies, a string of crimes. Um, and uh, he should be viewed as a uh, war criminal. Um, <laughs> as with most U.S. presidents since, shit, 1945 or so. Um, so, yeah, I mean, he's a big piece of crap, um, as with most presidents. Um, so... Yeah, I, I don't think they should view him very well. Um, he was also, like, CIA guy, like, and probably did some really deep, nefarious shit there, too. So, yeah, no, they shouldn't view him fondly at all. Uh, do I think W ever runs if his dad wins re-election? Uh, probably. I mean, there's only, like, five people allowed to be president. Um, if you've got, like, a Bush or a Clinton, you've got a chance. So... Yeah, um, I think he probably runs. I mean, most of these people are just power-hungry, absolute psychos that you wouldn't, like, want to even dump a bucket of water on if they were burning in the street. Um, so, yeah, anyway, I do think he runs if his dad wins re-election, probably at the same time, uh, 2000, um, and uh, after four years of a Democrat or something. All right, well, thanks, Perk, for those questions. All right, uh, this is from Ruin Rick. Uh, this is long. Sing All Right Now at Your Own Risk, which I still have not looked up the lyrics to, and I, I promise you at some point it will happen. Um, huge fan of the pod here. I often fall asleep listening to it. So first, I'd like to give a shout-out to the 100-decibel guitar riff that announces the middle break. The fact that it is even, isn't even part of any specific advertisement makes it extra awesome. It just jars me awake to hear the sponsor's messages in a highly 
It just jars me awake enough to hear the sponsor's messages in a highly suggestible semi-conscious state. You win, advertisers. I have also been tossing and turning uneasily after the creepy Stanford fan's voicemails. Something's not right here. First of all, he's a Stanford fan. This is a huge red flag. We know that there are, what, four of them? Next, why does he want you to sing? And what? And why all right now? It's simply not the workings of a sane mind. Then, of course, there's a baby crying in the background in a super arrogant tone. It's nightmare notice. It's nightmare inducing. I, 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 I have a, I'm having an impossible time reading today, Ryan. <laughs> it is long. Uh, yesterday, when I saw a tweet about a coded message hidden in a podcast review on the POC Twitter, a lot of pieces fell into place and my skin began to crawl. Hear me out. Oh, wow. This goes in a very good direction. In 1969, the Zodiac Killer confounded authorities by killing people and then sending bizarre messages demanding that the press obey his demands. This, of course, happened in the Bay Area, where Stanford is. Back then, the Zodiac Killer demanded that his obscure set of symbols be published. He was very arrogant in his letters and also the calls that he would place to the authorities after his murders. He would taunt the authorities for being wrong in their prognostications about his methods. Does any of this sound familiar? The Zodiac Killer's reign of terror ran from 1969 into the early 70s during a time of great upheaval in our country, not unlike now. Free's song, All Right Now, released in 1970, was wildly popular during this period and could definitely be considered the soundtrack to the Zodiac's heyday. The Zodiac Killer, of course, is still at large. His identity remains one of the great crime mysteries. The soundbite says, time to talk to the audience? Oh no, this is death. Let's not make this a literal occurrence. I am concerned that the Zodiac has resurfaced and evolved from taunting newspapers to taunting the podcast of champions. I urge you to tread lightly when you consider singing this song all right now. No one needs to hear this, and I fear that by indulging him, you will awaken his bloodlust. Of course, refusing his request might also send him spiraling into a murderous rage as well, so I'm not sure what the correct course of action is. Maybe one of the other listeners has more experience in the world of criminal psychology and can weigh in on this. No matter what happens, wishing you well, and thanks for bringing the podcast heat year-round during the pandemic. It's much needed at a time like this. Bruin Rick. All right, so we have an allegation here from Bruin Rick that one of our listeners is the Zodiac Killer. Yeah. I mean, I think that's fair. I tend to believe him. I I tend to believe that, yes, one of the many um, manifestations of Hitler is indeed the Zodiac Killer. (laughs) Because <laughs> I'm, I'm assuming Stanford fan and Bruin Rick, actually, for that matter, are manifestations of Hitler, correct? I, sure. <laughs> As are all of our listeners. Um, there's a there, there's some strong allegations in that uh, email, and I like them all. I think that's uh, I like the you know the jump, the conclusions that he was making. Um, on the Zodiac Killer? I, I don't think it was a single jump. I think it was all if A, then B, then C. Yeah. I mean, these were logical inferences that he was drawing here. Well, the, I, it, what he, the one thing he was referring to, and let me, I, I mean, let me, I forget which review it was. We have to pull it up. There was a, someone tweeted at us and said that they were mad that you didn't get the review that he had left because it was a, something about reading the first letter of every line. And yeah, he wanted me to read it like an acrostic, which, fine, I should have noticed it was poetry, or that was the attempt. Um, so basically, well, one of the reviews we read last week was by M111, and it was written like a poem, you may have remembered me saying that. Um, the uh, the acrostic was Fuck Larry Scott, 
But oh. it also did leave off the final T, which I'm just going to say that was a mistake. Mm, one, one, one. Was this, uh, okay. So is that one where it's the first and last letter or what's the? Just the first letter. So an, an acrostic poem. I think it's an acrostic. Am I saying that right? It wasn't of every line. I think it wasn't every line. It was every word. No, every line. So the way you write an acrostic poem is where the, uh, the, the, the first letter of the line spells out a word if you go down the page. Um, okay, you, well, you, you I, I think me? we were doing that on – me and some other people on Twitter were trying to do that. And it just – the way it was – there wasn't that many letters. It was like seven letters or something. We're like, okay, this doesn't make sense. You guys sense. might have been reading the wrong review. Oh, maybe that was it. Okay. Yeah. There's uh, there was this is again the Apple Podcast issue where it shows up at the bottom. Yeah, I wasn't able to pull it up. I was trying to pull it up online. It didn't. Uh, it didn't didn't work. But okay, uh, so that's what it was. So you 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 got the. Uh, I got it. Yeah. The cipher of whatever that message was. Okay. I understand now. Gotcha. Okay. Well, I Bruin see Rick. everything now. So what? Okay. The the important part of this is: Do you sing? And maybe awaken the Zodiac killer again, or do you refuse to sing and then he goes into a murderous rage and kills anyway? I'm not sure what's the best course of action. I think you got to placate. I think you have to. Yeah. Um, you know, you got to play by his rules until you can figure out who he is. I mean, <laughs> I've watched some crime shows. You got to, you got to, you got to be able to, you know, do both, right? You got to continue your investigation. Um, but at the same time, you do have to make sure that that person is assuaged and uh, doesn't go on murdering people. So I think I will have to sing. Okay. Uh, but we should determine who this is. Which which manifestation of Hitler Day is this? Right. So we'll throw him a little bone and we'll have you sing. And then, uh, yeah, and hopefully we don't hear about a bunch of Bay Area engineers getting offed by right. the right. Zodiac Killer of exactly. 2021. Exactly. Good stuff, Bruin Rec. We love conspiracy theories. Like that's, I mean, we should have a. Should there be an off season of conspiracy theories? Should is that what we should do? I I, I hate them and all people who uh, posit them. So yes, let's do it. <laughs> okay, uh, we got Alex. He's an SB. Year four, the process, and Chip Kelly believers. Hello, Dave and Ryan. Dave, uh, you've always said progress isn't linear. I agree with you. Uh, game to game, but season to season for a new coach, you'd expect to see improvement every year from the first to the fourth year. As each year you get more of your guys, the program resembles your vision and your players get coached up. But after year four progress shouldn't be linear. It should be maintenance. The roster is fully yours and you should have a stable distribution of freshmen through seniors that you've trained. In my opinion, it's fair to accept any coach. I'm sorry. It's fair to expect any coach to improve from year one to year two, year two to year three, year three to year four. For those that have faith in Chip Kelly, I think they cling to this. But in my opinion, there's no reason to expect growth between year four and year five. Now you should be in maintenance. To me, that's why if Chip Kelly wins only six or seven games in year four, while that's improvement from the, his first three years, it would leave me with zero faith that he has a higher ceiling. Uh, is it fair for year four Chip Kelly expectations uh, be 10 wins, uh, meeting the high of Mora and KD in Toledo, or should he b 
be let go. Can you see a scenario where he wins seven games and you'd have faith in him in years beyond? Thanks for your thoughts, Alex and SB. Uh, really good question. I love the framing. Um, I think that's a right way to think about most coaching tenures, which is improvement should come in those first three or four years. And then wherever you settle at that point in modern day college football is probably your, you know, again, your settling position. Like that's the kind of program you're going to have. Um, yeah, obviously there are changes, you know, different programs do different things, but for the most part, I think that's the way to a good way to think about it. Um, uh, I think your expectations for Chip Kelly in year four are fair in a vacuum. Um, but I think also, I don't think that's, I don't think they're going to win 10 games next year. Um, so, you know, I, I think as a prediction, I think it's not necessarily too hot, but as an expectation, given the, you know, where they are year four and where they should be year four based off of, you know, it's Chip Kelly and he's had four years to build this thing. Yeah. I mean, people were expecting, if you go back to 2017, people were like, okay, year three, they're going to be gangbusters. They're going to be competing for a national title in that year. Like, remember that talk. Um, and that wasn't like just me, but it was me. Uh, but it was a lot of people because that's the expectation when you hire Chip Kelly. Um, and they aren't there, not close to there. They've had three straight losing seasons. Of course, this past season was a little bit better, but still three straight losing seasons. Um, so, yeah, I think that's fair. I don't think that's the expectation of, um, of UCLA that they win 10 games. I think it's going to be much softer than that. Um, just, you know, reading those particular tea leaves, but we'll see. Um, can I see a scenario where he wins seven games and I'd have faith in him in years beyond? Um, so the, the thing is, and this is the part where, um, certain entities, um, are driving me a little nuts with this is that they're like, Hey, the process is working because they were better this year. And I'm like, what process takes four or five years in college football when the lifespan of a player in this game, like not lifespan, but their playing time span is four or five years. Like the process can't take that long because you need to actually be good within a couple of years. Like you need to be good when those guys that you first recruit are redshirt sophomores, like at the latest. And in today's game, you really got to be playing freshmen and have them be pretty good. You got to be playing true sophomores and have them be pretty good. Um, and to win seven games in his fourth year. And for me to be confident about that, I, you have to hold within your mind that it was a failure to begin with. And instead the foundational classes were these last two instead of the first four um because seven winning seven games in your fourth year basically says that your foundation that you built was good enough for basically being a game above 500 and frankly um however much your expectations and i'm not speaking about you alex but just the general ucla fan uh your expectations have been drilled down by these three years under chip kelly the the upside of the program should never be this is a seven win program um and Keep hiring and firing coaches until you get somebody better because UCLA can recruit at worst like a top 20 program when it's run well. And recruiting correlates to wins basically everywhere. If you recruit well, you'll win. Jim Mora just did it recruiting at a top 15 level for three years. And guess what? He turned out a top 20 program for four straight years. You can do it. Um, and uh, I just think... There's no way that seven wins should be like the expectation or something that's greeted with, you know, 
high confidence about the future at any point at UCLA, unless it was, again, in his first year. If he'd won seven games in year one, or even year two, after you know starting three and nine in year one, if he'd gone and won seven games last year, of course, yeah, that's that's real progress. But in year four, after incremental improvement in the first three years, and then you're going to be graduating some guys, and guys are going to be leaving. Like Dorian Thompson Robinson, if anybody watched his Twitter video this week, he's coming back for a year, and then I would bet millions of dollars that he's not coming back for a year five. Um, so you're going to be starting over at quarterback. Um, some of these other guys who are juniors may leave. Um, we don't know what's going to go on in the transfer portal. Um, I just, I don't know. I, 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 you've got to think that year four is the potential high point for Chip Kelly. And maybe it's sustainable beyond that point. But if it's seven and five, yeah. I mean, that's, that's you got to call it at that point. Uh. I, I was I didn't think UCLA was on a good trajectory, even the beginning of this year. And then you know I think Chip Kelly did enough that it felt like it, it intrigued me. You know, and I feel like this could still work. Um, is it taking longer than it should? Probably, um, but I don't know. I'm a little more optimistic on UCLA than I was. They're ten and twenty one. They're ten know, and twenty one through three years. I'm, I'm kind of, you know, this is a basketball school, David. I'm trying to be, you I'm know. Gonna, I'm going to, I'm going to hurt you. I'm going to find <laughs> you and hurt you. I'm going to, I'm going to call up our friend, the Zodiac killer, and he's going to find you. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, it's, it, it, this year was better. Um, it certainly was, but I mean, in a bad pack 12, demonstrably not good. Um, and I know a friend, Andrew will say the ACC was worse and that is true, but still not good. Um, and in that bad Pac-12, they went three and four. Um, it's just, yes, they were better. Um, yes, they lost all of their games by a single score, but they still lost games to, like, Stanford. I mean, Stanford wasn't good. I mean, and they lost to Colorado, and it turns out Colorado, when you face them with, like, a team... This is the thing. UCLA can recruit, like, about what Herman has done at Texas. They should be able to just outclass a Colorado team, talent-wise. Like, they should just be able to do that. And the fact that the program is in such a state where you walk away from that game and you're like, eh, they're about even talent-wise, that's criminal. I mean, that's just that's just not doing your due diligence as the UCLA head coach. And, yeah, they're able to win some games and it look pretty close, and I think it is largely because of Chip Kelly's coaching acumen, like, you know, building a fun little offense and finally, finally getting his defense semi-right. Um, but the fact that the talent isn't, you know, UCLA historically should have about the second most talent in the league. And yeah, Oregon's made a big run in the last 10 years with all the Nike money, the big um, surge after Chip Kelly and everything. But still, UCLA in L.A. should be about second best in the conference from a talent standpoint. And right now, like watching the league this year, this the the two four seven you know, player, whatever, the team rankings, like what the talent on the team will tell you is that it's about the sixth best, but that's the way it looks too. It looks like a middling talent team in the league. And that's just, I don't know. You're just doing the job wrong if you're doing that. Um, and yeah, they could crest to a, they could crest to nine and three next year. It could absolutely happen. But that's, that's coaching UCLA like it is Colorado, you know, and I'm not trying to denigrate Colorado as a job. I'm really not, but 
Colorado, Mike McIntyre was able to go 10 and four one year with the right combination of seniors, the right combination of experience and that sort of thing. Chip Kelly might very well be able to do that at UCLA too, with the right combination of experience and right combination of, you know, all these guys who are, who are juniors and seniors, but that's not the way it has to be at UCLA. You don't have to do that. You don't have to build to a single good year. Like the same way you don't have to do that at USC. You don't have to do it at Oregon now. You shouldn't have to do that at UCLA. The fact that they're recruiting like Colorado, and again, I'm not trying to denigrate Colorado. It's just two different jobs. But UCLA doesn't have to do that. It's just, it's crazy that they've chosen to do this. It's crazy that people are talking about, oh, wow, they might they might have one really good year and that's enough to sustain them for a long period of time. And it's like, if they go 9-3 and three next year, is that really going to be sustainable if they have to change out the quarterback and they have to change out a bunch of starting experience? I don't think so. And then you're starting back with building it up again. And yeah. it's just this doesn't this doesn't have to be the way it is at UCLA. All right. Um, yeah, well, I guess we'll disagree here. I think they're doing a great job there. You're, I you're, will. You're, you're I hitting will. the ceiling. Oh, I hitting you. the ceiling for that program. Um, oh, man. Oh, um, all right, this is from Bobby. Let them play football. I needed to send you. OK, we got to put this up on the website. Uh, I needed to send you guys this meme I made off of David David Woods comment about Larry Scott acting like Marie Antoinette with regards to Colorado playing the last week. It took me hours and you can really tell by the high level of craftsmanship. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it's an image of Marie Antoinette, but with a like literally he screenshotted Larry Scott off of a, you know, Google image search and just put her on top of it, put him on top of her face. And it's really good. I think we should put it up on the website. All right. This is uh, by we, you mean me? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if that's going to happen. You might have or to do make this it, one. make it the image for the uh, tweet. We could probably do that. Yeah. Yeah. That's the good shit. Um, all right. I'll save that right now. Here, you do the next one. I'm going to save this. All right. This is a text message. Uh, Oregon built its early mid-2000s national brand on mostly sub-elite talent and innovative scheming, which turns out is better than sub-elite coaching and a roster full of chippers. For all his beefy Miami SEC pedigree, the only thing softer than Mario's football team is USC's now-former offensive line coach. Hithaday is going to have to go subatomic with his analysis to put a shine on this puss-bucket season. <laughs> Holy shit. Um, yeah, I, I, I tend to agree. I think a lot of people um, ascribe to... Uh, Chip Kelly's teams in the 2009-2012 period retroactively as like these high-talent teams, um, which I don't think is borne out at all by looking at those rosters. I mean, I remember doing it when he was hired at UCLA, and I think his first couple of offensive lines, like several unranked guys, a couple of two-stars back when they still gave those out, like it was dreadful. Um, And he, I mean, some of those guys turned out to be pretty good because that can happen off of the offensive line, but also... I've gone into this before, but there's a weird thing with cause and effect. If you're on a good offense, you'll look a little bit better, and that might turn you into an NFL prospect, and then you turn out to not be a very good NFL player. That happens. Um, But also, uh, yeah. I mean, I I think there's a minimum level of talent you need. Um, But if you're you're just the, the recruiter type, things have to kind of align perfectly for you to win the big one. Um, and I think it happened for like a Mac Brown at Texas where things aligned perfectly with Vince Young being there, like just do everything quarterback. 
but he was he was a recruiter type who wasn't known really for X's and O's at all. Um, and I think that's kind of what you're going for with Cristobal is that you'll just get that right combination of talent and you're able to do it. Um, the thing is, they're not I mean, they need to get up to the level that Brown was consistently at Texas. They're not there yet. Um, and it, another couple of classes that are in the top 10 level, they might just very well be, you know, when you have enough talent. Um, it can mask a lot of issues, um, but right now, as it is, um, you know, I think that's that's kind of what you're looking at is, um, you know, a, a, a high-level recruiter as a head coach, but I don't think you're getting um, an elite game coach for sure or somebody who's like a big X's and O's advantage. Yeah. All right. Um, I think we have uh, – the UCLA fans are, like, writing a lot this uh... – Holy sh. Yeah, this is battered Bruin syndrome from our friend Thomas. Hey guys, may, you, can you talk to your people? You know, these are your, this your is, Bruins. This is our people. Thomas is our people. He also went to USC. Oh, he did. Okay. Uh, hey guys, I know it's been a while since I last wrote in, but I had fallen behind recently. What are listening... you making up for lost time, Thomas? Yeah, apparently listening to each week's episode. As such, I had not a chance to put something on paper without it becoming a stale between episodes until now. In the not-too-distant past, however, I seem to recall someone wrote in asking why UCLA has struggled to get fans motivated about their football program. Or perhaps the question might have been why there isn't more frustration, outrage, and action to demand changes. It's a basketball school, Thomas. Come on. Um, I know, You'll be dead. <laughs> I know David gave his own answer at the time, but it is indeed lacking in some respects, as most of David's answers are. I added that. Uh, my response to the original question about the fan base is pretty simple. It doesn't exist. Demographic changes in Southern California oh, over, <laughs> over the last 20 years uh, have meant that many Bruin alumni, season ticket holders, and even donors have moved away to other parts of the country and frequently disengaged from the program. Compounding the problem is that UCLA has started to take fewer in-state residents, so the pipeline for, quote, new fans is also drawing up. But oh, there's a, what does that mean? I, I this makes sense. It's just it's no it's that that's it's the opposite is true. Take, okay. If you take out of state residents, they more than likely did not grow up UCLA fans, right? Right. Right. Okay. So those ones are more likely to be converts, right? The in-state residents, there's a chance that they grew up UCLA fans and will continue to be UCLA fans. I can't count the number of people I know who went to UCSB or UCSD or, God forbid, USC, and were actually UCLA fans the whole time. They just didn't get in. Out-of-state people who go to UCLA, they're converts. They're people you can convert who are Indiana fans or UNC fans or Duke fans or whatever. Or they're from China or, like, some international area where it's like, oh, wow – You've just got somebody invested in American football. This is cool. This is this is a good thing, and it's actually something that is more likely to gain new fans. Because also, where people go to college is more than likely, like overwhelmingly likely, going to do the place where they end up working. Anyway, continue. Okay. Oh, well, I'm, I think you're reaching here. I think he, Thomas is right on. I he will says, fight you. We're, about, we're like, we're not even halfway through this. <laughs> but there's another factor that almost never gets discussed. For a long time, you could be a UCLA season ticket holder and not be required to make an annual donation to the athletic department. That allowed many fans to resell their tickets to the USC-UCLA game at such a premium, it would cover the cost 
of the face value of the ticket package. Fans could then effectively attend the rest of the games for free. With UCLA instituting donations for most ticket packages now, the changing financial calculus has seen many fans gradually not renew their tickets. This seems like a personal experience extrapolated to uh, many thousands of people. He's... I think he's done his research, David. I will fight you and Thomas (laughs) together. (laughs) Last but not least, there's the issue of the Rose Bowl itself. Its capacity is so big that it's easy to see when fan interest is lacking. This has a downstream effect on borderline fans who then don't make the effort to attend games. That apathy then gets picked up by the media and helps depress interest in UCLA football and the Pac-12 nationwide. All right, I can't, I can't, I can't. Okay, I, I just want to address this whole thing because I don't really want to listen to <laughs> You're like doing this you point can, by you point. Can, you can read the last two paragraphs. I'm not going to listen to them. I'm just going to say this. <laughs> Anybody looking for a complex explanation for why fans are not going to UCLA games or going to USC games at the rate they used to or going wherever the hell, first, it's a pandemic. <laughs> But also, in years past, why they're not doing that, it's because the teams are bad. That's it. That's all it is. All it ever is. You know in the late 90s when USC was really bad, no one went to the Coliseum. No one did. You know like two years ago when they were showing pictures of an empty Coliseum because Clay Helton's team was so bad? It's because they were bad. It wasn't because of some weird thing where USC was like taking more kids from – whatever japan or china into the school and they're not building enough new fans no it's because the teams are bad ucla has been bad at football for all but three years in the last 20 that's why people aren't going to the games but guess what it's still the biggest traffic driver on our stupid website by far (laughs) ucla football there's still people passionately talking about a dreadful team no, the fan base is there. It's going to always be there because people go to the school and they loved it and they love their experience going to games and they just want to talk about it with people. They want to get a sense of community. They want to feel a sense of being part of something in this increasingly isolated world. And that's great. They're always going to be there. You just need to win so they'll actually come to the games. That's it. That's all you need to do. You need to win. It's not about the stadium experience. It's not about switching to the sunny side from the shady side. It's none of that stuff. It's just that you need to win football games. That's it. That's all it is. There's nothing else to it. The fans are there. All you got to do is win. All right. Well, sorry, Thomas. Dave's not a believer, but I'm I'm with you. I'm I'm uh yeah I'm with you on all that. So he's got a little more to go. Uh, but the conference as a whole needs UCLA and USC to play in big stadium big stadia to entice oh broadcast. It's just stadiums. All right. We're it's we're not speaking Latin here. Stadiums. <laughs> I was like, I've never really seen it put that way. Okay. Uh, in big stadiums to entice broadcasters to pay as much money for TV contracts as they do. While this will sound arcane, my belief is that projected viewership is estimated against the NFL, where sta- stadiums almost universally have a capacity around 70,000. This sounds like a big number until you realize how many Big Ten and SEC schools have uh, in excess of 100,000 seats. Most Pac-12 schools, though, play in places that can barely hold 50,000 people. All is not lost, however, for the Bruin Nation. Much of this decline was enabled by the prior AD Dan Guerrero. If Martin Jarman fulfills even half the promise he has shown, I think he can help UCLA adopt a more strategic approach 
Maybe then the Bruins finally can reimburse Coach Neuheisel for all those extra pairs of gloves they had to pay for. Keep up the outstanding work, Thomas. I mean, this reminds me of so many industries where they they want to they want to find a marketing solution to what is a product problem. Like, it's not a strategic approach issue, except if that strategic approach is hiring a good enough coach to win football games. That is all you need to do. All of it. It's not. What kind of package can I devise? How can I improve the stadium experience? Maybe I won't play songs that are 40 years old in the lead up to the game. No one gives a shit if you're good. No one cares. No one cares. You can you can play symphonies as long as you're good at football. Everyone will come if you're good. That's it. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's funny the marketing thing. You know, the marketing people don't have really control over the product, so they only can do their job. They have to market it. So if you give them a, a shit product. The marketers still have to try to figure it out, right? But even on a even on a belief, well, if you give them a shit product, it's going to be a shit product no matter what. So you can sell people on it as something other than a shit product, but people aren't that stupid in the long run. It's one thing to sell somebody a bad whatever thingamajig one time, and it's a piece of shit, but you've you know marketed it well enough that they're like, oh, wow, this sucks. But they're never buying from you again, right? Right. So the thing is, if and I don't even know how that would translate necessarily to football, but it's like, oh, we're going to be really good this year. So, you know, buy your season tickets and then you, you know, come in three and nine. Well, they're going to wait and see right after that. They're not going to sit around and buy you and buy another set of season tickets after you just went three and nine. Um, so, no, long run. And it's been 20 years of this. You actually have to be good. And the thing is, by Jim Mora's second year, they were selling out the Rose Bowl with regularity or at least getting up into the 80s. Like, that was happening. You can do this. I mean, it's not, it is not rocket science by any means. You just have to win football games. And that is definitely not rocket science, especially at UCLA. It's just a lot of people making it harder than it needs to be, including Chip Kelly. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for that. Brilliant email, Thomas, with the glove shot at the end. I'm glad. I didn't have to I didn't have to insert that myself. He did it he did it on his own. Wonderful. This is from Peter in Vancouver. Uh UW linebackers. Oh Jesus. Uh gentlemen. I've had to say oh Jesus at the start of an email like four times already today. Uh I wanted to set the record straight with respect to Hifliday's comments about UW's inside linebackers. First, I don't remember that email at all. Um, but first, UW did sign a four-star linebacker in the 2021 class, Will Latu. He isn't listed on 247 Sports as an inside linebacker. Instead, he is listed as an athlete, but he's projected to play inside linebacker. Second, in the 2020 class, UW did sign two three-star linebackers, but I wouldn't call them low three-stars since both had a composite rating of about .85. I'd call that mid-three-star. One of them has been moved to outside linebacker since he signed and got playing time in 2020. Third, UW did sign a couple four-star linebackers in the 2019 class. One of them, Josh Calvert, was injured as a true freshman and is still working his way back into being able to play at full strength. I expect to see him competing there in 2021. The other did see the field some in 2020 and might have seen more if it wasn't a shortened season. And the fact that a former walk-on is beating out some of the inside linebackers is a testament to how good of a coach Bob Gregory is, especially considering that Eula Fosho has been rated by pro football focus as one of the best inside linebackers in the country. Take Great. that hit day. Yeah. Hell yeah, Peter. We don't remember what this was about, but still kick his ass, Peter. This was sent like 
very recently, like while we were recording or just before it, we were recording. It's also from Peter. I think he, he started drafting this one as soon as he sent the other one. No, I meant that the one you just read. I didn't even see that the next one was him. Oh, too. there's another one from Peter. Oh, okay. I'll check that out, too. Uh, I guess I'll read that one. But, um, yeah, it's funny. Like, do we, do we have to remember more of what we say on the show? So when no, people... no, no, no. I'm, I'm never going to do it, so people don't need to expect that. Okay. So when, if someone's going to reference something that was some email that we had from a Ryan, month ago. Right, right, right. I've definitely said the opposite of something I said, like, one week to the next. I think I've disagreed with myself in a single show before. Like I don't, I, I don't remember anything I say. Once it's gone, it's gone. It's it's left my lips, and now it is, you know, it's for the ages now. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm in the same boat. I mean, I'm older than you, so I have more of an excuse. But okay, the last one is also from Peter. Youngest team, gentlemen. I heard several times while listening to the Fiesta Bowl how Oregon had the youngest team in college football, and I've read this in some of the game summaries as well. Where is this coming from? Because Oregon's team isn't even the youngest in the Pac-12, according to what oh, I've read. You, oh, 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 sorry, sorry. I'll tell you where this is coming from. It's coming from Mario Cristobal, whoever talks to the TV production teams. Yes. And you know what? You know Can I tell you the amount of fact-checking they do? None. None. Sports information person like writes something down and gives it to him, and you're like, oh, okay. Because um, Chip Kelly was doing this for the last two years before this year. And people consume. And they kept talking about it. Yeah. Cap talking about it. Oh, they've got like 90 freshmen and redshirt freshmen and sophomores. And it's like, yeah, and 60 of them are walk-ons. <laughs> Left that part out. Okay, so according to what I've read, Oregon had 81 players out of 111 that were freshmen, redshirt freshmen, or sophomores. But the Huskies had 88 out of 111. Well, and, and if you look at them, so many of them are walk-ons because oftentimes the walk-ons are freshmen. They're guys right. who are excited to be on the team, and then they burn out really quickly because they're like, this sucks. Being like just a garden variety walk-on on one of these teams sucks ass. <laughs> like you get very few of the benefits, and you have to work so hard. Yeah. Um, so there's a big washout rate. A lot of these guys drop off the team after their freshman and sophomore years. So that's why you see – and that's why these joker coaches can say, oh, I've got the youngest team in college football. I've got 80 freshmen and sophomores. And it's like, well, yeah, but, you know, a ton of those are walk-ons because they always are. Yeah. It's like you're going to one of those, you know, Silicon Valley uh, startups and you're just getting work to the bone, but you're not really getting a salary. And, like, the people around you are, like, getting stock and all this stuff. And you're like, what? Why, why am I working around the clock for this? And then they're out, you know. And th- we see them drop out a lot because it's just – it's tough. Uh, if you're a preferred walk-on – and I think they've they've up they've upgraded some of the benefits and stuff where you can come to the training table and things like that. So that's that's helpful. But you're I mean you're not the same kind of you're not you're a lower class citizen on that team. Yeah. He says, okay, no, you guys aren't uh, doing into doing your own research, but maybe you can find out why these reports are wrong. I think that it might have been based on this tweet by Pac-12, Sports Pac-12, which did not even include Washington for some reason, and then probably promoted by Oregon Athletics. I guess you guys aren't the only ones not into doing your own research. And the tweet is, how youthful is Pac-12 football? Eight teams rank in the top 30 nationally, a percentage of eligible underclassmen on their rosters. And Oregon had 73.6%. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Stanford was second with seventy one point six percent. So it's percentage of eligible eligible class underclassmen on their rosters. I don't even know what that means. I'd have yeah, to I don't, that's, um, yeah, I mean, the, yeah, it's it's 
but just what I said. I mean, it's you you don't have eighty one between what would that even be two classes? Like think about that. It's forty and a half dudes. For Huskies, it's forty four. Yeah, no, it's a bunch of walk ons. That's all it is. I would say look at the two deep, and what percentage are you know freshmen and sophomores? Like yeah, you know, I mean, would that be fair? Like. I mean, yeah, you can do it. Um, like, who's actually playing? Like, what's their experience? I would look at it from like a okay, from your top ten tacklers or whatever. How many are freshmen and sophomores? Um, your you know top ten most productive offensive players. You know, your quarterback, your starting offensive lineman, your you know whatever five best skill guys. How many of them are freshmen and sophomores? Um, but other than that, I mean, I think it's just irrelevant. Who gives a shit if you're like redshirting twenty? Um, freshmen and sophomores and then there's another 50 walk-ons like right. okay great like or last year oregon had like a pretty much all senior offensive line right or you know a veteran offensive line but if you had like 10 freshman offensive linemen or you know three red shirt fresh whatever and it's like oh we, you know averaging out they're they're young it's like well no you're all your starters are seniors you know um you know, this year you could say there was a younger offensive line because they, they lost everybody from last year. And obviously you can't have 50 walk-ons. I'm exaggerating for effect. Yeah. Um, but, oh, good stuff. Well, I guess you could. You could offer way fewer scholarships and just have a team full of walk-ons. I think Kansas State did that a little bit. Is UCLA doing that a little too? Or? <laughs> <laughs> uh, they're not doing it a little. They're doing it a lot. We love it. Kansas State did a lot of JCs, I think, they were doing. Yeah, yeah. It will be interesting to see, um, and we're probably going to have to cover this in this offseason, the transfers, um, if there's going to be basically like free agency, which Mm -hmm. it sounds like there's going to be. Like, you could see a lot of big-time transfers coming into the Pac-12. You know, we've seen a bunch leave, too. But, uh, you know, pick up some grad transfers. But anyone can come in and play right away now. So you might see things get addressed. Yeah. and people that maybe didn't recruit as well. If you're, you're UCLA and you weren't like going all, you know, balls to the wall and recruiting, maybe you pick up guys from the transfer portal. Yeah. I, I, the thing is, I think um, it is going to be a free for all. And I think it's going to take on a lot of the same elements of high school recruiting. And where has UCLA not excelled um, when it becomes a competitive process? It's going to be competitive. There are t- several teams in the Pac-12 I know of who are really looking at the transfer portal as like a major thing that they want to hit. Um, and I'm sure there's a ton of teams nationally who are saying, OK, we didn't get what we needed in high school recruiting this year. We're banking on the transfer portal, giving us five or six impact guys. Well, how do you how are you going to manage that? UCLA, you've got to suddenly get competitive for all these dudes. And yeah, maybe you're banking on a more mature type player, um, you know, somebody who's a 20 or 21 year old who's coming in and and making a decision that's not as based on, you know, who's shown me the most love or whatever. But I don't know, as the process is more like that, you do have to get competitive in your recruitment. I mean, when people are recruiting people, others for jobs, they do have to get pretty competitive about it. Like it's not, uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm really interested to see how well UCLA does on the transfer market. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that's it. You know what? We forgot to mention we did do a final power rankings. It's pretty much the same as the last one. But number 12, we had Arizona Wildcats. Number 11, we had California Golden Bears. Number 10, Oregon State Beavers. 
Number nine. Washington State Cougars. Number eight. UCLA Bruins. Number seven. Arizona State Sun Devils. Number six. Utah Utes. Number five. Stanford Cardinal. Number four. Colorado Buffalo. Number three. USC Trojans. Number two. Oregon Ducks. And reigning Pac-12 champion, well, not really, but still number one in our power rankings. Washington Huskies. There you go. Excellent. I don't think I've ever done them in an order like that before. We usually have pauses, so that was a, yeah, that was that a first. Was great audio. It's <laughs> pretty good. I um, it. All right. Well, Dave, good stuff. We'll uh, continue to try to keep these on a weekly basis through the offseason. And uh, make sure you send in your your comments, your questions, your reviews. Definitely on the Apple Podcast. Put some stuff in there. Um, anything you want us to decipher, conspiracy theories that Dave hates, we'd love to talk about those. Love. All that yeah. stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. And, yeah, we'll try to do some recruiting shows in the next couple of weeks to uh, break down the classes uh, for the North and the South. Um, and, uh, yeah, and then that'll be the last planned shit we do for the entire year, and the rest is just going to be us throwing uh, stuff against the wall and seeing what sticks. <laughs> Awesome. All right. Well, that's David Woods. I'm Ryan Abraham. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast of champions and we will talk to you next time. Bye. This is Tony Kornheiser's show. I'm Tony. We expected someone else. So what exactly is the show about? Hmm. I don't know. It's a sports show nominally. Football's over, but we're finally at a point where things matter in college basketball and baseball season is on deck. Greatest three words in the English language, pitchers and catchers. We have some of the best voices come on and explain what matters or what makes an upset, like Ryan does. <laughs> Nine over eight. No, that's not an upset. No, yeah, it is, Bob. And if you're lucky, I might just tell you about my search for discounted sleep pants or my worries about what my dog just ate. Listen on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.